Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Fracknoy. I'm professor of astronomy emeritus here at Foothill College in Silicon Valley. And it's a real pleasure to welcome everyone here in the Smithwick Theater and everyone watching us on the web around the world to the 18th year of the Silicon Valley Astronomy Lectures, sponsored by the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, by NASA's Ames Research Center, by the SETI Institute, and by the Foothill College Astronomy Program. We're delighted to have these lectures at Foothill College, where the facilities of the Smithwick Theater are being made available for our uh, lectures uh, year-round. There are six lectures each school year. Tonight is a particularly exciting time for us because our speaker is one of the great scientific pioneers of our time. Dr. Jill Tarter has led the international effort to search for signals from civilizations among the stars. Dr. Tarter holds the Bernard Oliver Chair for SETI at the SETI Institute, uh, serves on the management board for the Allen Telescope Array, one of the prime instruments in this search, is President Emeritus of the Board of the California Academy of Sciences, and continues to make important contributions to the worlds of science, education, and the arts. Many of you know that Jodie Foster portrayed a fictionalized version of Jill Tarter in the film Contact. In 2004, she was on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. After the talk, she'll be, made, she'll be autographing Sarah Skoll's recent popular biography of her life and work, Making Contact, which is published by Pegasus Books, and which I recommend to everyone here and everyone watching us on the web. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is both a personal pleasure and a professional privilege to be able to introduce to you Dr. Jill Tarter. And uh, thank you, Andy, for that great introduction, and Seth for, for talking about our institute. And thanks to all of you for braving the smoky skies and somewhat traumatic times um, in Northern California. In 2004, Craig Venter and Daniel Cohen um, made a very bold claim. They claimed that whereas the um, 20th century had been the century of physics with fantastic success, um, the 21st century would be the century of biology. And of course, they were talking about genomics. And certainly, that prediction has played out probably faster than they could ever have believed. But nevertheless, I think that prediction was a little bit um, pallid. I actually think the 21st century is going to be the century of biology on Earth and beyond. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Here's um, the uh, NASA's chief scientist, Ellen Stefan, before she retired, saying that uh, there would be strong indications of life beyond Earth in a decade and definitive evidence in 10 to 20 years. And then we have the Associate Administrator for the Space Sciences Division, uh, John uh, Grunsfeld, now retired, saying, um, reminding us that we are on a continuing, currently on a continuing journey to Mars. 
and we're going to Mars to look for evidence of extinct and extant life. So life beyond Earth, I think that this prediction can play out in one of three ways. First, we could discover it. We could find it in situ um, by finding biomarkers uh, on the surfaces of some of the bodies in our solar system. We could find it remotely by finding biosignatures in the atmospheres of exoplanets around other stars. We could communicate with it. All right, we could find techno-signatures. That's what SETI is all about. There could be a serendipitous detection um, while we are observing the universe, um, trying to understand astrophysics and astronomy. And lastly, we can export it, right? We talk about going back to the moon, to Mars, to the asteroids. And uh, groups like Breakthrough Starshot or the 100-Year Starship Study or the Icarus Project are thinking about interstellar spacecraft. So there's something that astronomers know, and it's something that I think it's our job to talk to the world about and to share this particularly particular perspective. It really does take a cosmos to make a human. Um, and this perspective, I think, is, is very worthwhile and necessary. This perspective is important to share uh, because I think it will help us achieve a long future for humanity and the rest of life on this planet. And from this perspective, we actually need to rethink what we mean by here and now. So here, well, obviously we're here, the Smithwick Theater, which is at Foothill College. Uh, sitting at the bottom south end of the San Francisco Bay in the Silicon Valley. And from the uh, altitude of low Earth orbiting satellites, we'd see ourselves here. Since 1968, on Christmas Eve, when Bill Anders took this Earthrise picture coming around the limb of the moon in Apollo 8, we've been able to understand ourselves as being here on a world a world that's floating in the vastness of space. And uh, in uh, the summer of 2013, the Cassini spacecraft, which was studying Saturn until last month, um, it turned around and it took a selfie. It took a picture of all of us here. Actually, right there below the tip of the arrow, there is a little white dot. And that's you and me and all of us. So I hope you got the memo, put on your best clothes, went out onto the lawn and waved to Cassini when it took this, this image. But that's us. And that's following in a tradition that was started in 1990 when Voyager 1 passed by Neptune on its way out of the solar system. And it turned around and it saw Earth caught in a, sun, a beam of sunlight and dust. And this is Carl Sagan's pale blue dot. This is us and our sun and the planets that orbit it are actually at the very, uh, out towards the edge in the boondocks of a beautiful spiral galaxy. Now, nobody went outside the galaxy to take that picture, right? <laughs> right? Un until now, it's actual photographs of what I was talking about. This is a galaxy that we think looks very much like the Milky Way galaxy would if you could get outside and take a picture. And we're reminded that our sun is um, 
one of some 400 billion stars in this galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is one of about 200 billion other galaxies in the observable universe. And this beautiful, famous deep field picture by the Hubble Space Telescope makes us remember that uh, as we look farther out in space and we see these dots getting smaller and dimmer, we realize that we're also looking back in time because of the finite speed of light. So what do we mean by now? We have to rethink that, too, from this cosmic perspective. And uh, so we realize that we are now in the current epoch of the universe's 13.8 billion year continuing evolution from the Big Bang to big brains and beyond. And I have to confess that even astronomers and other scientists are not yet quite comfortable with this picture because we realize that what we have been studying for centuries amounts to only 4% of the mass energy density of the universe. The rest of it, dark matter, dark energy, dark is just code for we don't know. We don't. Um, and we are trying to figure this out. Cosmologists are struggling with the earliest times where we can't yet make our physics of gravity and quantum mechanics play nice together. But nevertheless, this story of cosmic evolution is the very best creation myth that we have ever, as a species, been able to assemble. And it is beautifully self-consistent, for the most part, with the observations that we make today. But observations that we make tomorrow may, in fact, cause us to rethink this cosmic evolution story. And that's what science is all about, being able to change what we think we understand on the basis of new evidence. And it's self-correcting. So we humans, we're all a part of that big picture of space and that long history of time, right? We humans trace our lineage not just back through the centuries of our families, not just back through the millennia of human civilization with its art and its um, many experience, uh, experiments with, with governance. We trace our heritage not just back over the millions of years since we branched off from the apes, not just back the 2.4 billion years during which the Earth's atmosphere has been perfused with oxygen thanks to the photosynthetic labors of cyanobacteria, not just back to the formation of the sun and our solar system 4.6 billion years ago, but maybe back another four or five million years to some giant molecular cloud that was contaminated 
by the winds of Wolf Rayet stars and supernova explosions like this modern uh, version, this modern supernova remnant. And we are deeply connected to these faraway times and places. The hemoglobin um, in our blood, the calcium in our bones, and all the elements heavier than helium that make you, you, they all started here at, in the explosion of a massive star billions of years ago. And those products, the debris of that explosion, was incorporated into a new generation of our star and planets, just as this modern debris may in fact be uh, incorporated into a new generation of stars and planets and perhaps life tomorrow. So it's taken really millennia for humans to piece together this story and we're still continuing on this journey because we're curious about who we are and where we are and why we are and who else might be there. And over my rather long career, there have been two game changers in this conversation. The first is extremophiles. The second is exoplanets and perhaps exomoons. Now, extremophiles are life as we actually did not yet know it a few decades ago. These organisms are illuminating the amazing possibilities for life on our own planet in environments that you and I couldn't tolerate for a millisecond. They live in boiling battery acid. They live frozen in ice. They live at the bottom of the oceans with huge pressures, high temperatures, no sunlight. They're happy there, right? We call them extremophiles, but maybe it's us that are extreme, as Seth has always already suggested, that we have such a narrow range of conditions that we find comfortable. So there these organisms are suggesting to us that there may, might be a lot more potentially habitable real estate out there than uh, we might have expected. And so there is this picture that we get uh, from doing classifications of life, right? And we know that it's an absolutely abundant highly branched tree of life, of which there are essentially three categories, bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. And we're just one tiny, tiny little twig on that tree, and we find ourselves so self-important. But you know, nature actually doesn't agree with that. In fact, we're also now um, rewriting that tree of life with uh, microbial biology and it turns out that this is a bacterial world, right? Bacteria are expanding explosively our understanding, our knowledge of different bacterial species. And uh, the eukaryotes and the archaea are in fact becoming smaller and smaller fractions of life as we know it. And this is hinting at uh, looking for life as we don't yet know it, either on this planet maybe a shadow biosphere, or on another planet. 
such as Mars. And this beautiful up close and personal picture of Mars is coming from the Curiosity rover. Now, Curiosity wasn't built to find life. It was built to tell us whether the conditions that we think are necessary for life ever existed on Mars and for how long. And so Curiosity has now shown us unequivocally that liquid water flowed on the surface of Mars for a significant period of time. Looking at this uh, laminated structure, this is essentially what you'd see at the edge of a river delta. And when Curiosity uses its SAM drill to drill into that structure, it finds carbonates, something we had that had eluded us until now, and something that indicates that, yes, indeed, conditions might have been right for life for a very long time. It's, it's really a question of the water. And more recently, now, we know that liquid water still flows on the surface of Mars. These recurrent slope lineae, uh, which show up in the Martian spring when it gets a bit warmer and are very extensive and recur Martian year after Martian year, are changing our um, ideas about the surface of Mars and how we can explore it. In fact, it's, it's actually caused a bit of a riff in the astrobiology community uh, about the question of the degree to which we have to sterilize the instruments that we send there now that we know that there is liquid water near or on the surface of Mars. And so some, some scientists want to go right now. Well, we can. And others say, no, we really have to um, rethink the whole uh, idea of protected regions and levels of uh, sterilization that we subject our explorers to. So Mars, hot topic. As Seth said, in our, in our institute, lots of folks are studying Mars. But it might be that we have to go farther out in the solar system to find life. In fact, we're interested in the giant moons of Jupiter, Ganymede, Callisto, and Europa. These are ice-covered worlds. Europa is about the size of our moon. And underneath the ice of Europa, there's probably twice as much liquid, salty, briny water as all of the Earth's oceans. Right? And further out, go out to Saturn, and it has a giant moon, Titan. And Titan has liquid lakes on its surface. They're just not water. It's too cold. Right? It's methane. Rains. It rains hydrocarbons on, on Titan. And we wonder what kind of chemistry might be going on, what this might tell us about origins of life early on Earth. And then, you know, there's this little pipsqueak moon called Enceladus. And again, the Cassini spacecraft studying Saturn and its moons showed us this really astonishing picture. From the south pole of Enceladus, there are cryovolcanoes, which are serving up into space the contents of a liquid, salty ocean beneath 
the ice on this tiny little moon. And once we knew about those, we went back to Europa, and there are also plumes from cryovolcanoes, not as reliably as we see on Enceladus, but very intriguing. These two plume systems, to me it seems like you know, this might be the free lunch in the solar system. If you want to know what's in that ocean, you don't have to think about how you're going to melt or drill sterilely through all the kilometers of ice. You can just fly through the plumes and sample what's down there. So there are a number of studies that are now ongoing about plume missions in the solar system. And these might, before very long, end up giving us evidence of life beyond Earth. Now, beyond our solar system, there's the question of planets orbiting other stars. And starting in 1995, when we found the first um, planet orbiting a, a solar type or a, a main sequence type star, uh, we compiled a number of exoplanets quite rapidly, but they were all big. We had to wait to the launch of this mission, the Kepler mission that Natalie Battaglia is going to tell you about at the next lecture. We needed Kepler to show us the smaller planets, and it's done that amazingly well. And we can now say that there are more stars, uh, more planets, excuse me, than stars in the Milky Way. And therefore, there really is potentially a lot of habitable real estate out there. We, from Kepler, we've learned about planets of a type that we don't have in our own solar system. There are super-Earths and there are mini-Neptunes. And we use those terms, but we actually don't know whether those bodies are like the Earth or like Neptune. They're just good classification tools and these worlds are some of the many that we want to explore in the future. And what are all of my astrobiology colleagues at the SETI Institute and astrobiologists everywhere interested in? They're interested in finding biosignatures. They're interested in looking at the chemical composition of the atmosphere of some of these distant exoplanets looking for the signatures that we find in the atmosphere of Earth, the signatures of biology. So you can see there we have um, spectra, right? We have, um, we have uh, spectra, absorption spectra of Venus, Earth, and Mars. Venus and Mars, lots of CO2. CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere as well, but also oxygen and water and at um, longer wavelengths, methane. Now, carbon dioxide, I'm sorry, oxygen and methane molecules are very reactive. You put those two gases together and they're gonna turn into carbon dioxide and water. And that's indeed happening all the time in the Earth's atmosphere. But because there's such a strong biological source function on the planet, we have methanogens and bovine flatulence, cow fart, 
putting methane into the air, and we have plants and photosynthesis putting oxygen into the air. And we can see that in the spectra that we take of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, if you had a really sensitive instrument and could isolate the image of the planet from the light from its nearby star and investigate its spectra, you might be able to find such biosignatures. Now, it's a really tricky problem because you can't do this in a vacuum. You have to have context. You have to have planetary history in order to decide whether the chemistry that you're seeing is possibly biosignatures. So in some sense, there's not really a smoking gun yet. Ah, if you see that, yeah, that's life. Because it could have been produced abiologically. But the um, space agencies around the planet are in fact all on board uh, with, this, uh, with this concept of going to look for biosignatures. And I think they've got this covered. But what about if you don't want to just find ma microbes, but what if you're interested in finding mathematicians? Well, now what you have to do is look for technosignatures, right? You have to look for uh, some evidence of the actions of an intelligent civilization that's using technology. And it makes a lot of sense because here on Earth, we do things that are visible over interstellar distances. And it might be that a distant technological civilization is also doing something, and particularly emitting electromagnetic radiation, some kind of signals that a concerted effort and search program might be able to find. So that's what's behind SETI. We're looking for extraterrestrial technologies. And we began our search over 50 years ago using radio telescopes. At the turn of the century, 2000, we started to do optical SETI. And right now, we're trying to move our searches down into the infrared, where they're less susceptible um, to obscuration and scattering by dust than optical wavelengths. Radio goes right through. Radio isn't bothered by the dust. Optical is, infrared is less. So we're trying to move into that regime. And what we're all looking for is some sort of engineered signal, something that looks like what nature can't do. All right, so here's what we call a waterfall plot. Frequency on the horizontal axis, time on the vertical axis. And I don't have to tell you anything more about that chart for you to know that there's noise there and there's something that isn't noise. Right? And this noise is from the cosmos, right? and it's from the instrumentation. And these tracks are narrow band, compressed in frequency, radio signals. And this is what the planet Mars looks like sometimes 
when we use our SETI instrumentation to look in that direction. So when the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and Mars Express are on our side of Mars and they are communicating with the DSN um, and sending back information, we see their carrier signals like this. And it, this is the kind of artifact that we're looking for. And in the radio, we look for this frequency compression. In the optical, we look for time compression. We also look for narrowband lasers that are just at a single tone and single frequency. But we look for time compression. We look for very bright laser pulses that last a billionth of a second or less. And these artifacts are clearly engineered and not something that nature can produce. So whether or not our searches succeed is going to depend on A, is anybody else out there, and B, how long the technological civilizations out there last. What is their longevity? How long are these signals transmitted? Because if over time civilizations rise up, are there for a little while, and then turn themselves off or do themselves in, it's not very likely that any two technological civilizations will be close enough in space to be sensitive enough to detect one another and co-temporal around at the same time over this very long 10 billion year history of the Milky Way galaxy. So longevity is the key. And that's why Phil Morrison, who is the co-author on the first modern SETI science paper, has called SETI the archaeology of our future, right? It's archaeology because signals coming from a long distance, traveling over these very large distances between the stars, if there's any information content, that information will tell us about their past by the time it reaches us. But because we made a detection, because SETI was successful at finding that signal, it tells us that on average, technological civilizations survive for a long time, that their longevity, average longevity of technological civilizations is long. That's what a successful SETI detection tells us. Right? And it also tells us that they, those folks, they made it through to a long future, so we can too. That's the hopeful piece of the message. And as we're looking for these signals, this electromagnetic radiation, not to mention the other possible messengers, uh, particles like neutrinos or gravitational waves, which we have no way yet of looking for engineered signals, we just keep up. We just keep reminding our colleagues who are doing that, hmm, let us know about any anomalies, please. Right? And we are concentrating on electromagnetic radiation. Even so, the haystack we're trying to search through is incredibly vast and nine-dimensional. Right? There's three space dimensions, a dimension of time, two senses of polarization we have to search. We don't know what frequency to look at. Um, 
If there's information, we don't know what modulation scheme is being used and how that might um, perturb the nature of the signal. And lastly, we don't know how strong the transmitter is out there and how far away it is. So we don't know how sensitive we need to be. We could get all the other eight uh, items correct in our, in our searches, but we might just not be sensitive enough yet to find it. Just like LIGO needed that last upgrade by a factor of two before it was finally successful finding gravitational waves. So until recently, Project Phoenix from the SETI Institute um, was the most extensive search that has been done. We used um, pairs of antennas here in uh, Australia at the Parkes Telescope and another telescope called MAPRA. We used the 140-foot uh, telescope at Green Bank, West Virginia at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and a telescope that was constructed or re refurbished by graduate students at Georgia Tech and a bunch of back-end signal processing equipment. And then we finished the search using a large telescope in Arecibo, and our second telescope was all the way across the Atlantic in, uh, at Jodrell Bank. And we had a new set of equipment. So over 10 years, digital processing gets better fast enough so that you need to be refreshing your equipment. And in terms of what we actually covered, well, a star times how many megahertz of the spectrum we looked at. And we did about a billion, I'm sorry, a million star megahertz in that 10-year project. And we were on the air about 5% of the time as we did this search for a decade. Now, we really wanted to be on the air all the time, and so we decided to build our own telescope in Northern California. And uh, in 2007, we commissioned the first stage of the Allen Telescope Array with 42 telescopes. It's the first time that we've built a large, uh, a, a large telescope out of a large number of small dishes, right? And that makes, and they're all connected with uh, computational power, which makes silicon as important as aluminum and, and steel in, in these constructions. And so it gives us two paths forward for growth potential. We can build more dishes for more sensitivity, and we can increase um, our computational capacity at the back end of these telescopes to search for different types of signals over wider frequency ranges. And from 2007 till, I'm sorry, from 2011, when the Kepler spacecraft announced the first list of confirmed exoplanets until just last year, we used as our targets the exoplanets that we knew about, and we observed them three at a time. Doing that helps us to discriminate our technology, we call it interference, from something that's potentially their technology. But last year, 2015, we switched. Once Kepler told us that every star as planets, we switched to a survey of the 20,000 nearest stars. And they are overwhelmingly small dwarf stars, much less massive than the sun. And here you have a coordinate system that astronomers like to use for the sky, right ascension and declination. And each of these dots is a target 
that we have studied. And you can see that here, that's the Kepler field. We spent a lot of time there. Um, and that left this declination strip fairly un undersampled. And we're back now trying to fill that in. And here's another strip that we will not fill in because that's where the geosynchronous belt of satellites projects. And we're certainly not looking there because they absolutely drowned out our very sensitive equipment. So this is a piece of the sky that is not within our um, sights. And if you'd like to um, follow our observations every day and night, uh, you can go to www.setiquest.info. And John Richards has a, a compiled a really nice site that lets you know what we're doing, but what the computer is doing, to be precise. We very seldom get called until the computer has automatically checked in, in real time for signals that it's found, and it requires that they pass five levels of additional tests in the follow-up. And only then do humans get called. Otherwise, the computer says, mm, seen it before, now seen it again, it's interference. And so that's what, what we're doing at the SETI Institute at the Allen Telescope Array. But there are new players. Um, in the summer of 2015, Yuri Milner announced a $100 million, million grant over 10 years uh, to support SETI research. And that has been going to the Berkeley SETI Research Center. And they have a, uh, a plan, an observational plan, over the next 10 years that will build really good signal processing equipment, recorders, and they will look from 1 to 10 gigahertz. That's the portion of the radio spectrum where nature has given us a quiet window. Lower frequencies have a lot of noise from synchrotron radiation, electrons that are spinning around the magnetic fields of the galaxies. Higher frequencies, we get uh, emission from our own atmosphere, from water vapor and oxygen. 1 to 10, the quietest place in the radio spectrum. And they'd like to systematically search through that. And they'd like to do a million stars and 100 galaxies. So whereas Project Phoenix, two decades before, did 1,000 stars over a few gigahertz, and we got that million star megahertz number, um, just as you would predict from 20 years of improvement in digital signal processing, um, the uh, Breakthrough Listen project will be doing a factor of 10 to the 4 or more better with new equipment. And so they've been running time on uh, here, the uh, Green Bank Telescope in uh, West Virginia. And they have time and equipment on the Parks Telescope in uh, New South Wales and Australia, and also time on this automated uh, Planet Finder telescope at Lick Observatory just down the road uh, looking for optical SETI. And they've also signed memorandum of agreements with um, the FAST telescope that's coming online in China, with Meerkat, an array that's coming online in South Africa, and both the Lovell Telescope at Javrel Bank and the uh, E. Merlin Array uh, 
at, uh, in, in the UK. And we can expect that they will be putting uh, recording equipment and signal processing equipment at these sites in the, in the future. So besides the SETI Institute and the Breakthrough Listen, there is more SETI um, going on. SETI at home, how many of you have SETI at home on your computer or ever had? Right? Yeah, right? It's 12 years old. I think it put distributed computing and citizen science on the map. Right? You can use your computer, um, the, the spare cycles from your computer to look at data that's been recorded and look for the same kinds of signals that we're looking for in real time. And it's been running now um, at uh, the Arecibo Observatory um, with the seven-beam feed. We actually, after the Hurricane Maria, there's been damage, and it's not clear whether or who will be able to repair it. It's not severe, but it's just a question of funds to repair and continue operating that telescope. So I put a question mark there, sadly. All right. There's a low-frequency array that runs uh, through the Netherlands, across uh, Europe, and up into the United Kingdom. Uh, it's begun looking for transient signals at low frequencies. Uh, there's an ja uh, Italian group called SETI Italia that has time on the 64-meter telescope in Medicina. Uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was a part of NASA's SETI project until it was canceled in 93, are now have moved one of the telescopes outside the fence. And so now they can use it again for, for SETI. And so there is a project being run um, at the um, Gavard, Goldstone Apple Valley uh, Radio Telescope, with students doing a sky survey for SETI. And the Japanese organize um, campaigns that put optical and radio telescopes looking at the same uh, targets occasionally. And then um, both the United, UK and Sweden have started new SETI groups that are thinking about new search strategies, and we welcome them in the radio. And in the optical, well, Harvard has been doing an all-sky, or the 80% of the sky that Harvard can see is drift scans. And, and with student-built telescopes and equipment, the Keck Observatory has been doing studies to find exoplanets, recording optical spectra that have now been re-examined, looking for monochromatic laser signals or bright laser pulses. There's a small amateur optical SETI uh, observatory in Boquete in Panama, and a team at uh, Penn State run by Jason Wright has been looking at the data from the infrared WISE spacecraft uh, looking for evidence of waste heat, the actions of uh, technology usage by a super civilization, Kardashev 2 or 3, you know, a lot more capable than, than we are. And um, it's been suggested many times that what we really should be looking for is not maybe big, wet biology running telescopes and transmitters like us, but it all may be machines from an advanced technological civilization. And so this generalized um, artificial intelligence, if that's what it is out there, where should we be looking for that? Well, if it's really 
uh, very uh, advanced machines that want to do a lot of computing, they're going to need power. Um, you might imagine that the computing was nested like matryoshka dolls, these Russian dolls, one inside another. And at the very core around the power source is the fastest uh, computing. And the waste heat from that runs the next generation and the next generation on out to, uh, to low uh, processing speeds at the outside. And where might they be getting their power? Well, black holes, good idea. Neutron stars, pulsars, perhaps. Um, or maybe we should actually be looking for miniaturized artificial intelligence within our own solar system. Something like um, the solar sail, the, the Starshot, uh, or um, other sail projects from science fiction, um, Dragonfly and... Uh, Star Wisp, right? Somewhere within our solar system. These might be good places to look if it's this machine intelligence that we're interested in. So there are many unknowns, but there are all kinds of compelling reasons to search all the sky all the time at all frequencies so we don't miss those transient fleeting signals. And we understood this when we wrote SETI 2020 in 2000 saying here's what we should do for the next 20 years. And we said we've got to build an omnidirectional sky survey system at all these frequencies. Well, haven't been able to do that yet. But in fact, we may be getting there. There are three projects right now that are in the early prototyping stages that will be looking um, at 20,000 square degrees all the time, at 1,000 square degrees, and here in the infrared, 0.1 square degrees. And I like to share a little bit of my excitement about these new projects. So at the SETI Institute, we've just finished a crowdfunding campaign um, on Indiegogo. And thank you to anyone in the audience who helped support this. We are wanting to build a total of 96 cameras in 12 observatories around the globe. And these cameras have um, very fine gratings. They have a very co complicated, fast readout process that can find pulses um, that last a thousandth of a second or less. And by spreading these cameras out around the, the planet, we can actually look at all the sky all the time in the optical. Um, another, those two other projects have now gotten munged into one, it's a collaboration, based on using one meter Fresnel lenses, and that's Shelley right behind the lens. Uh, and imagine a geodesic dome structure covered with these Fresnel lenses, and then another layer below them of advanced photo detectors. And the lenses focus a large area of the sky on the detectors. And um, two of these, would be in the infrared. The rest of these would be operating in the optical, so you get 1,000 square degrees or a tenth of a square degree. And maybe you build two of them for redundancy and to uh, help discriminate against uh, false positives. So we've been thinking that um, in it, for imaging and biosignatures, the future is going to be in space. And so the JWST will be launching in 2019 now. It can do some transmission spectra of hot Jupiters, probably not places we want to live, 
but will tell us more about the atmospheres of these uh, exoplanets. We're, my, we're going to launch something that is um, a two, what is it, 2.4 meter class telescope that the uh, Department of Defense said to NASA, oh, you know, we built two of these and we only needed one, so here. <laughs> kind of nice. Um, we hope that it will be equipped with a coronagraph to block out the bright light from the star, or we might, in fact, uh, fly a star shade way out in front of it again. You want to block the light from the star so that you can hopefully see the very faint planets close to the star. And we're beginning to talk about a big space telescope, big 10 meters, 16 meters, um, that uh, will eventually be able to detect those biosignatures that I spoke about before. Um, not a very classy name at the moment. We call it the Large Ultraviolet Optical Infrared Telescope, right? We don't know where the sweet spot is for biosignature detection. This is in the future, all right? Well, we thought that the future was always going to be in space for detecting biosignatures. But recently, there's been an idea that's come that we're beginning to look at about how you might build very lightweight mirrors and out of new materials and focus them all. And it might be able to look for biosignatures very close by. And it's going to be a privately funded project. All right, now, what about SETI in the future, an optical SETI? Well, there are large glass telescopes being constructed as we speak. The 30-meter telescope, which I guess we now know is going to go to Hawaii. The extremely large European telescope, uh, 39 meters. And the large synoptic sky survey telescope um, to give you a movie of things that are changing on the sky every day, every other day. All right. And We'd like to get SETI instrumentation onto these big pieces of glass. We'd also like to get some manifestation of this OSS, Omnidirectional Sky Survey, that we've been saying all along that we need to do. Hopefully, it will be one or all of those optical projects that we're talking about. And then we need to figure out how to do it in the radio. Um, and in the radio, we've got fast coming on board, and SETI is in its science case. We've got the Square Kilometer Array being built as an international project sometime 2020, late 2020s, 2030s. 3,000 telescopes over um, the Karoo Desert, right? We're in their science case as well. And maybe, if we get lucky, we will be able to build in the US the next generation very large array, our very, very successful telescope in uh, Socorro, New Mexico. Um, it's going to depend on the decadal review and what astronomers say they want to do. But we'd like to be in their science case as well. And lastly, this is you know, the granddaughter of um, the ExoLife Finder telescope. Um, all these mirrors phased up with the ability to detect the infrared leakage, the infrared signature from the second law of thermodynamics of advanced technologies out there. 
We call it Colossus. Does that give you an idea how big it's going to be? It's something like 74 meters across there. All right. Nobody's stepped up to fund that one yet. <laughs> but we're doing the first baby steps with the prototyping. So um, SETI is certainly one way that we could find life beyond Earth. But even while we're searching, even if it never detects a signal, SETI has another job to do, and that's to help us share this cosmic perspective with everybody else in the world. Because the process of thinking about SETI, the process of doing SETI, getting involved with SETI, forces you to have this different perspective. It essentially holds up a mirror and says, hey, you guys, you earthlings, you're all the same when compared to something that evolved out there independently. And so this mirror, this perspective, can help to trivialize the differences among humans that we find so difficult to deal with today. And I think this is absolutely critical for managing the challenges that we face in the future, challenges that do not respect national boundaries. So if we can use SETI kind of as training wheels, a pilot project, get the world working together, right? then I think that we have a chance at solving these larger, uh, more divisive challenges. Climate, water, food security, poverty. We've got to work on all of those, and we have to work on them together. And I think SETI can help us get there. So my last slide. These words are from Caleb Scharf, the chairman of the astrobiology department at Columbia. Caleb reminds us that on a finite world, and we are certainly on that, a cosmic perspective isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. So when you leave here tonight, not while you're in the car if you're driving, but when you get home, pick up your devices and change your profiles. And make the first thing in your personal profile the first thing you say about yourself, that you're an earthling. And then act like it. Thank you. The, the kind of radio transmissions we're looking for presumably have to be fairly high energy if they're going very long distances. Um, are, are we anywhere kind of putting out really high energy radio transmissions so that others can find us? Well, we are in fact leaking. We're leaking radio and television broadcasts, but being engineered signals, the engineers haven't put any more power into those than is needed to get to the receivers, right? So they're not very high power. I think maybe our most detectable leakage is coming from airport radars. But we are not deliberately transmitting, not now. There is another debate within the community about whether we should. Because if everybody listens and nobody transmits, it's not going to work too well. Right? So, but think about it. Think about transmitting. How long are you going to transmit? A day? A year? A century? I think transmission probably, if it's your strategy and if you decide to do it, 
I think you need to sign up for something like a 10,000-year program. And we're not good at two-year plans yet, right? <laughs> 10,000 years is a big stretch for us, and I think what that means is that we, transmission is in our future when we grow up, when we become an advanced technology. But people disagree with me. I mean, okay. yeah, over here. Uh, is this thing on? Okay. Hi, Dr. Tartar. Um, my question is, how do you reconcile the Fermi paradox with your line of work? Because I think you'd have to be pretty optimistic about that when it comes to the Fermi paradox. Okay. The Fermi paradox, for those of you who haven't heard of it, uh, is usually phrased this way. If there had ever been anywhere and any when in the history of the Milky Way galaxy, another technological civilization, then on a short, on a time that's scale that's really short, they would, they would uh, transition from um, the detection of, or the, the invention of science to interstellar travel. Very short time scale. And then with interstellar travel, again, on a short time scale compared to the age of the galaxy, they would eventually colonize the entire galaxy, right? Doesn't matter much what kind of model you use. It all comes out that doesn't take very long once you start. And so then they, we say, well, but they're not here. And I know that some people think about Aunt Alice being abducted for medical experiments. <laughs> but let me say, in terms of the evidence, they are not here. Therefore, there can never have been anywhere, any when, another technological civilization. So we're the first. Well, my problem with that is, that structure is that I don't think we can say they are not here. I showed you pictures of miniaturized artificial intelligence um, that might be within our solar system. Uh, I think we could probably rule out big Battlestar Galactica kinds of things at the Lagrange points in our Sun-Earth system, but not if they were cloaked and, and not if they were dark, right? And not anywhere else. We really not even looked beyond our doorstep. There could be rocks out there, 150 meters um, in size, and they have our name on it, and they're incoming, and we don't know about them yet. So we've really very poorly explored um, our local surroundings. And if you take that cosmic haystack, and now you're talking about signals, not spacecraft, that cosmic haystack, that nine-dimensional volume, let's set that equal to the volume of the Earth's oceans. So how much of the ocean have we searched? 50 years? Must have searched a lot. Well, it's more like one 12-ounce glass out of the Earth's oceans. It's huge. The space that signals could be hiding is huge. The universe, the real physical universe is also vast. Our galaxy is very large. I'm not impressed. I don't think we can say they're not here. And therefore, there's no strength to that so-called paradox. Thank you. OK. Hi, um, you spoke about the longevity or the duration of technological civilizations. And you said that um, our detection of any signal from such a civilization would indicate 
that they are long-lived. But I don't understand why that would be. It could be very temporary, could it oh, not? Okay, but if, if civilizations on average are short, short-lived, right? We've, got, we've had technology for about 100 years. If we do ourselves in tomorrow, if Donald Trump tweets <laughs> the wrong message to North Korea, if we turn ourselves off tomorrow, the chance, and, and so 100 years is the average longevity of a technological civilization, then if it only lasts 100 years and we have to be around the same time, right, to receive that message more or less, oh, that's and if it's, it's 10 billion years of the galaxy's history, then the probability is very small that if technologies only last for a short time, that, that any two would overlap in time. That's what I was trying to say. So that probability gets greater and greater as the longevity expands. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes? yes. I'll still keep going yes. if, if it can help you. <laughs> yes, I think. I'll think about it. I'll okay. let you know. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, over there. Hello, um, I just wanted to thank you, um, first of all, for all your work. You've inspired me and SETI from a, when I was a young child, so. Um, but I, my, I appreciate that, thank you. <laughs> my question is, um, has any thought been given to um, what I've heard called the dark forest theory, where um, if there are technologically advanced civilizations out there, their first prerogative is to hide themselves because if they let themselves be known, then that lets them, you know, it alerts other civilizations to a possible threat. And so the first thing you would want to do is hide yourself. Well, that I think probably says more about our own internal fears than perhaps anything to do with the actual universe out there. So we're afraid that there's something that we need to hide from. Okay. Well, if they can hurt us, then they have to get here. And that means their technology is a lot more advanced than ours because we aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Well, through the solar system, but the stars still seem to be far away in the future. Okay, so now this is an advanced technology. How did they get to be that advanced? You know, if in fact everybody out there is um, mean and intent on evil, then I don't see how they can survive for that long. I think there's another alternative, and that's Steven Pinker, and um, I think the book is The Better Angels of Our Nature, 900 pages, in which he demonstrates that over time, we have become kinder and gentler, and that that is a type of cultural evolution that one can expect. If you don't do that, you do yourself in. Right? And if that's the case, then I think that advanced technologies may not be something that we need to fear. It's one hypothesis. Stephen Hawking, you may have heard, mm. thinks 
it's another way around and tells us it didn't work out very well for the natives when Columbus showed up in the Caribbean. Um, but I think an old, advanced technology can't survive, cannot become old, unless they evolve beyond those aggressive tendencies that probably helped them get intelligent in the first part. So um, it's not something that I particularly lose sleep over. I don't know the answer. I don't know any way of finding the answer except seeing if we can detect evidence of someone else's technology. All right, thank you. Thank you for your perspective. Yeah. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, I have a question. So if you had to make a kind of a guess as to what would be the first signal we would ever you know, receive, what would it be? And also to follow up, what do you think the impact it would have on like, you know, our society, our governments, et cetera? Well, I don't know what the first um, signal is likely to be. I know what we're looking for, and therefore what we might find, because we've built special equipment to do that. But indeed, if we make a serendipitous discovery, because we build some new instrumentation to look at the universe because we want to understand, and suddenly we stumble on something unexplained, the, the best example being the original detection of pulsars, which were called LGM 1, 2, 3. By the time they got to 4, they figured, nah, there can't be that many of them out there. Um, but again, it was because a new instrument was built and looked at the universe, the sky, in a different way. Um, so I don't know what is most likely. In terms of the impact on society, we've actually held meetings. We've held a number of meetings on that topic. Um, trying to bring in a broad um, range of expertise and domain knowledge. When all is said and done, the best they could tell us was that the world will respond to the uh, announcement of a signal uh, in accord with the belief systems that are held at the time. And you go, <laughs> we paid your airfare for this? You know? <laughs> right? Uh, there's a lot of the population that already believes, again, without definitive evidence, that uh, we have detected them, that they are here. So those folks aren't going to be real upset. There might be some fundamentalist religious groups which are very upset because they postulate a particular special relationship between humans and Jesus Christ. That's probably not going to be... Um, a real winner for them. Um, in terms of the rest of the world, I think this global communication, this uh, crazy 24-hour cycle um, we're in, still does have some um, real news, not just fake news, and I think probably that helps us um, avoid any irrational responses. So that's my best guess. Okay, over here. Good evening. You mentioned that um, we don't know what bio and techno signatures to look for. Are we not spending at least some effort looking back at Earth to see what sort of bio and techno signatures the Earth is emitting? Yes, we are. And in fact, how do you take a look at the Earth's atmosphere from a distance and do a chemical assay of the Earth's atmosphere as if you were 
very far away. Well, we don't have spacecraft right now that are that far away. But we can do something. We can look at the moon. We can look at Earthshine reflecting off the moon. And that is a full disk spectrum of the Earth. And so we have done that. And that is one of the kinds of things that's helping us look at what spectral region should we build these um, biosignature detectors to uh, investigate. So yeah, you can see the Earth shine on the moon, and you know what the chemistry of our atmosphere looks like. Thank you. Yeah. You, you have a question about extremophiles on Earth and possibly on Mars. Are the, I understand extremophiles are found in rocks on Earth, just plain rocks, and are the, I don't know if they're found um, where there's permafrost um, on, in, in rocky areas. And then again, going to Mars, how deep is the permafrost on Mars? You know, how deep do we have to dig to get below it? Well, certainly you're right that crypt, uh, endocryptolithic uh, lichens are found in rocks in the dry valleys of the Antarctic. They've actually um, permeated the porous rock and are leaching the minerals that they need for um, chemosynthesis out of the rock. Uh, in terms of Mars and looking at the permafrost, I think that the first place we'll be trying to look is for underground liquid aquifers because all that water that we think was on Mars early on, we see some of it frozen in the caps, the polar yeah. caps of uh, the planet. It certainly lost a bunch of the water, but mm -hmm. models for how much water could have been lost um, to photo dissociation indicate that there's probably still a lot there that's going to be underground, and I think that's probably going to be our first attempt. So how deep? I uh. don't know. We see shadowy things that look like they might be entrances to caves. Um, Penny Boston, now the uh, chair of the NASA Astrobiology Institute over at Ames, um, she's the woman to talk to about how deep these caves so, might be and what so we might find there. Shallow enough for a probe. Let's give yeah. other people a chance yeah. too. Okay. Hello. Uh, so a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is, if we are focusing our efforts into trying to find uh, civilizations that are more advanced than us, um, how do you reconcile the fact that they have not found us yet? I mean, they are, are they not looking or, uh, you know, how they find us and we just don't know or, you know, how, how do you explain that? And the second question real quickly is, uh, how, so more than the impact on the world, how, what do you think the impact on you would be uh, if we find life next week? <laughs> I'm sorry, the last question, what would be the impact of? On yourself, on as, as a person, yes. Oh yeah, well, I've got the answer to that one. I've got a very good bottle of champagne in the refrigerator at the observatory and at the SETI Institute as well. And we will drink champagne, for sure. Um, after we say, holy shit. <laughs> um, so in terms of them finding us, well, they may have. We have an expanding bubble of our leakage radiation going out, let's say, 
80, 90, 100 light years since our first transmissions. Um, they may be within that bubble and may have detected us, but if they're farther away than, say, half the distance, 50 light years, we won't have had time to receive any um, response from them. Hi there, got your message, right? So it may be a, a question of time. And, and for billions of years, they would have been able to see our biosignature. So they would know that this place was good for life. Technology, they have to wait a while. Okay. We can do one more. One more, okay, to... sorry. I'm All right, interested. last question. I'm interested in the biology of extremophiles. Uh, do we know whether uh, all of them have, uh, are based on DNA that's chem chemically similar to ours? And if so, is there any kind of life anywhere that's ever been discovered that doesn't have the same DNA structure as ours? Um, yes, the extremophiles that we study are all DNA, right? They seem to have, as you look back with the mitochondrial DNA, they seem to have um, a thermophilic structure. They were heat lovers. We don't know whether that means um, that they originated uh, in hot places or that they were the only organisms that could survive the late heavy bombardment which vaporized um, our oceans uh, three plus, 3.8 billion years ago. We don't know. Um, and the, um, so you had another piece of the question. So they are all DNA-based, yes. And, yeah. and the no National other... Academy of Sciences uh, issued a report now about five years ago. Essentially, we call it weird life. Uh, life that uses some other biosolvents, life that has some other metabolic uh, processes than the standard life that we're aware of. And their conclusion was it could be here, existing on this planet, and we haven't found it because all the tools that we use to look for life are based on DNA. Well, let's thank Dr. Carter for his